Well, good morning. Again, as uh, Pastor Sam said, we're uh, in the Christmas season, Christmas tide, the 12 days of Christmas, and this is the second Sunday of Christmas tide. Uh, last week we looked at the, the very first portion of scripture in the New Testament, the genealogy of Jesus, right at the beginning of Matthew's gospel. And today we look at the first four verses of uh, John's first epistle, so 1 John, and think about the meaning of, of Christmas, what it means. Next week, as you might have seen in the slides before the service, we'll launch a series that will take us through the Gospel of John and we'll really take about the first half of the year as, we've, as we look at almost every chapter in the Gospel of John. And that same series will be happening at our Woodland Drive-In campus, uh, just one week offset. The message that happens here one week will happen at the drive-in uh, the following week. And I'm thankful to our own Tom Hendricks. I don't know if you know Tom. He's an RCA pastor, a member of our church. But Tom will be filling in in a significant way preaching at the drive-in as we kind of do the same series in, in both places. So thank you, Tom. Uh, John, the Apostle John, begins his gospel with these words, the great claim of Christmas. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The claim of Christmas, right, that God came to earth in the person of Jesus. The claim of Easter is that we live in a world where a resurrection has happened, The claim of Christmas is that we live in a world where an incarnation has happened, where the living God, the God of all creation, the God of the universe, took on a body just like yours and mine, and as Eugene Peterson so aptly puts it, moved into our neighborhood, (laughs) moved in next door. So God knows what it's like to be human. Uh, the verses we'll read today, again, the first four from First John, uh, he begins the letter not with the claim of Christmas, but by unpacking the meaning of Christmas. And again, I've said this before, I'm thankful to Tim Keller and his little book, Hidden Christmas. If you have that book, you'll notice that the title of his final chapter is The Doctrine of Christmas. I have borrowed that chapter title for the title of this message. So before we read the scripture, let's pray, shall we? God, we come before you again, before your word, and we acknowledge with your church around the world that we cannot get it on our own. We don't have the capacity to figure you out. So would you show yourself to us? Give us your revelation. Help us hear you. Help us see you. Help us know you. It's what we want. So pour out your spirit on us, Lord Jesus, and make it so. We ask in your name. Amen. So 1 John, first chapter, the first four verses. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared We have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. Friends, indeed, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
I don't know if there are any N.T. Wright fans out there. I really appreciate N.T. Wright and his writing. He's a theologian, an author. Uh, I feel like he releases a new book about every day. He's, he's prolific in his, his writing. Uh, in his wonderful book, Surprised by Hope, uh, he, he invites us uh, into an imaginative illustration that, that helps us grapple with the historical claim of the resurrection. And, and the, the illustration kind of goes like this. Imagine that all of humanity is gathered together, kind of huddled together as a crowd standing in a very thick fog. And you can't see a thing. So far, you, can, you can't even see the person next to you. The fog is, is, is so thick. But we can hear people talking, making claims even. And every once in a while, we hear a voice that says, hey, I, I think I see some more light over here. I, this is the way over here. Everybody come this way. And very quickly, another voice, no, no, that's not the way. It's, it's over here. There's definitely more light this way. Come this way, everybody. And thinking people are left rather bewildered, wondering how anyone can claim to see anything in the midst of this thick fog, because as we look around, we don't see any more light in any one direction than any other. It's just fog. So you throw your arms up and wonder what to do. But imagine that someone comes walking toward us out of the fog and from the other side of the fog and says, God sent me to help you and to reunite you with him. Well, that would be something completely different. And as I recall, Wright goes on to unpack it more. I mean, the analogy is pretty clear, right? All the voices crying this way, that way, go that way. The, the claims of, of human religion and, and spiritual philosophy, and of course the one come to us from the other side of the fog, Jesus. I mean, his point is, if that happened, if someone really did come to us from the other side of the fog, that would be something completely different, completely new. And of course, the claim of Christmas is that that happened, that that actually happened historically. And again, that claim distinguishes the Christian faith from all other spiritual beliefs because it is a claim to history. The character of the claim is event-based, not idea based. The Christian faith is event-based, not idea-based. You know, those of you who know me and my own story a, a little more, you know that I didn't grow up in the church. I didn't really grow up believing anything spiritually. Well, kind of. I, I was pretty secular in what I actually believed. Um, and I, during my college years, was seeking, though I wouldn't have used that language. I would have said something different. I was exploring, something like that. I was in a Mormon Bible study for a while. I looked at all sorts of different kinds of stuff. One of the things I found fascinating about the Christian faith was it, as far as I can tell, is the only faith that provides a litmus test by which to evaluate its own claims. I didn't find that in any other faith I explored. Uh, if you have, I'd love to hear about it. The Apostle Paul makes this point abundantly clear with regard to the resurrection in, in 1 Corinthians 15. He wrote this, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. 
you are still in your sins. About the Easter claim now, if the historical claim that Jesus was raised from the dead is false, then faith in Jesus would be futile. We should bag this whole thing and go out for breakfast. And that's exactly why it is so very important that the Christian stories, namely the incarnation and the resurrection, Christmas and Easter, actually happened. Real life events that actually happened. And of course, the witness of the Bible is that they really did happen. And here's how the apostle concludes his his thinking in 1 Corinthians 15. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. The New Testament stands as an eyewitness account to the event-based nature of the Christian faith. In the opening two verses of his letter, what we read today, John takes pains to emphasize the historic truth of Christmas. Look look at the, the passage again. That which was from the beginning, now remember the people who were receiving this letter would have already had John's gospel. They would be very familiar with that gospel. Like us, they would remember the opening lines of that gospel. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Wow. Right, so when they received this letter, and John starts this with, that which was from the beginning, they're thinking, oh yeah, in the beginning was the word, Jesus. And the word was with God, and the word was God. So right away, they know that John's talking about Jesus again. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We've seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. You know, heard, seen, looked at, touched, seen it, testified to it. Now proclaim it to you. One New Testament commentator did extensive research on the way witnesses in ancient court proceedings shared their testimony. It's fascinating and compelling. What he found was that the verbs John uses in these two verses correspond almost directly to ancient eyewitness accounts. So these words, the words in these verses, are eyewitness testimony. And concludes the commentator, in writing this, John wasn't, quote, making conversation, but swearing a deposition. These words are a sworn deposition where John is saying, I saw him. I spoke with him. I touched him. I watched him die. I met with him, spoke with him, talked with him, and ate with him after he rose from the dead. I swear it. The Apostle John. See, that's, that's what this is about. What John is saying here is these are not just nice stories or religious fairy tales. This stuff happened. This is not a crutch for the emotionally weak. It's historic truth, event-based. This is not some frilly, foo-foo, make-believe thing. We saw him. We ate with him. We interacted with him. And I stand now before you and the entire world as a witness to the truth that all of this happened. Therefore, new life from God has appeared in the person of Jesus. We've seen it, we testify it, and we proclaim it to you, says the Apostle John. New life from God is possible 
in Christ. I um, came across an article this week, in of all places, I think CNBC, <laughs> but it, the, the article was titled this, Millennials Lead Shift Away from Organized Religion as Pandemic Tests Americans' Faith. Let me read the first few lines for you. It's not uncommon for people to seek God during times of hardship. However, the opposite appears to have happened in the U.S. during the coronavirus pandemic. A Pew Research Center survey released earlier this month found 29% of U.S. adults said they had no religious affiliation, an increase of six percentage points over the last five years, with millennials leading that shift. A growing number of Americans said they are also praying less often. About 32% of those polled by Pew Research from May 29 to August 25 said they seldom or never pray. That's up 18% from those polled by the group in 2007. And the article goes on to detail how people say that they're spiritual, but just you know, rejecting organized religion and, and all of its doctrines, opting instead for the simple belief that what really matters is that we live a good life, uh, primarily expressed by not judging others. And this, this increase of the number of people who indicate they have no religious affiliation has become known as the rise of the nuns. Now, if you're just listening to this, not the N-U-N-S nuns. They're, they're not rising up to overtake the world. N-O-N-E-S. Those who indicate no religious affiliation. Or do you when asked, do you have a religious affiliation, they mark the nun box, right? The rise of the nuns. Um, but everybody believes something. It, it's fascinating to me. It is actually impossible to have no functional belief and assumption. Everybody, everywhere, is living by some set of guiding beliefs and assumptions. And I, I would be happy to unpack that for you in more detail if you'd like, but it is absolutely true. It's impossible to believe nothing. Everybody has some, they're believing something. I love what Tim Keller wrote about this. He, he wrote this in his little book, Hidden Christmas. Over the years, I've had people say to me something like this. I don't know what I believe about Jesus. I don't know if I believe in the incarnation or all these dogmas, but really, doctrine doesn't matter. What matters is that you live a good life. However, when you say doctrine doesn't matter, what matters is that you live a good life, that is a doctrine. It's called the doctrine of salvation by your works rather than by grace. It assumes that you are not so bad that you need a savior, that you are not so weak that you can't pull yourself together and live as you should. You are actually espousing a whole set of doctrines about the nature of God and humanity and sin. And the message of Christmas is that they are all wrong. What a gracious way to call people out, right? Jesus represents a completely different way. That's the whole point. I mean, John wrote this, the eternal life which was with the Father has appeared to us. Jesus was with the Father, appeared to the apostles, so John is saying here that Jesus is eternal life. See, all religions and human spiritual beliefs try to point us toward the right way of living, 
teach us ultimate truth and direct us toward greater spiritual life. They try to point us in the way we should go. Christmas says that something completely different is now available to us in Jesus. Jesus, the one who came from beyond us to help us, didn't just point toward the way we should live. He said, I am the way. He didn't just teach truth. He said, I am the truth. Nor did he just point toward a better life and say, if you go that way, it'll, it'll be better for you. He said, I am the life. I mean, this is something completely different, says John. He doesn't want us to miss it. We believe it because of historical events, not just because we as Christians think our spiritual ideas are better than the spiritual ideas of other people. The claims are historic. We have a litmus test. If it didn't happen, go do something more productive on Sunday mornings. Again, in these, in these verses for the morning, John is not restating the claim of Christmas, but unpacking the meaning of Christmas. So the first thing Christmas means is that something completely different from human religion is now available to us in Jesus. That's the first thing. The next thing Christmas means is that we can have a personal and interactive relationship with God. Look at what John wrote. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Now, in, in the original language, in the Greek, that word translated fellowship is koinonia. And it, it speaks of a relationship of mutual sharing, a, kind of a friendship where there's reciprocity involved. Koinonia, fellowship, relating together. Now, now even the thought that human beings could have that kind of relationship with God, an, an interactive relationship where there was reciprocity, uh, even that, that thought is completely different from all religions. Uh, Eastern religions can't even comprehend the idea because God is not personal, but a, an impersonal force directs the universe. So the idea of a relationship is, is moot. It, it, there's nothing to talk about. Other religions conceive of a personal God, but that God is so great and distant and, and, and powerful, so much greater than us that there's no way to relate to a deity like that. We're, we're in different categories. We're different categories of being. So a relationship would be impossible. But in Jesus, something completely different is available to us, right? Look at what Jesus said. I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. Christmas means we can have friendship with God. A friendship, a reciprocal relationship, not just where we believe religious stuff about the idea of God in our heads, but where we can interact with the person. And please don't take me wrong. I mean, nobody has like the red hotline phone, right? Nobody lives on the mountaintop all the time. Primarily, I mean, you're, if you're like me, you primarily feel like you're walking through the valley and it's kind of shadowy and dark and you, you don't. You don't feel this a lot. But what Jesus is saying is that an interactive relationship is possible. That we can actually hear God speak to us. I mean, the Bible is God's word revealed, uh, received, 
but by the Holy Spirit, we can hear God's word perceived. All right, we've got to run that by other people, check it with the scripture, but this interactive relationship is actually possible. The author of Hebrews captures how different this is from all other religions. In referring to Jesus, he writes this, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence. See, Christmas means that God understands what it's like to be human, and thus we can know that he can relate to what we are experiencing. God knows because he experienced it. He cares about us that much. God cares for us, and his desire uh, for a reunited relationship with us is what caused him to come to us. If, if, if you know the Bible a little bit, call to mind the story of Esther. And, and remember that in the ancient world, approaching a throne was risky business. Remember, remember her story? To approach the throne of uh, the king uninvited was to risk your life. And the functioning assumption was that you would be killed unless the king granted you clemency. Remember that whole bit? Because of Christmas. See, we can approach the throne of grace with confidence because in Christ, God has granted clemency and invited us to the throne. Christmas means we can have friendship with God, a relationship. It's not the Jesus is my buddy kind of relationship. We still stand in awe. God is the creator of the universe, transcendent, yet he has come close to us in a person and we can relate to people and he wants us to relate to him. That's the whole point. So Christmas means we can have friendship with God. Finally, Christmas means we can have fullness of joy. The last verse we read today, we write this to make our joy complete. If, if we were to expand the meaning I believe the Apostle John intended, that verse would read like this. Our joy will be incomplete until you have the same friendship with God that we do. So we're writing for the purpose of you coming to faith in Jesus. That's the only thing that will make our joy complete. The only thing lacking in our joy is that everyone everywhere doesn't quite yet know what God has done. And next week we move into this series in, in John's gospel called That You May Believe. And the apostle John is a preeminent communicator and one of the things that makes a person a good communicator is that they are clear in their communication. One way to be clear in your communication is to fess up at the beginning what you're going to say or to tell people very clearly why you have been communicating with them. The Apostle John does this in chapter 20. Why did he write his gospel? He tells us, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book. Many other signs done in the presence of his, the claims are historic, event-based, but not all the events are recorded. But these are written, this record of events is written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. We write this to make our joy complete. Why did the Apostle John write the letter of 1 John? Well, he tells us that too. In chapter five, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know 
that you have eternal life so that you may know that you have eternal life. That's why John wrote, so that those who are in Christ might know, have assurance. The word is know, not hope or wonder or desire, but know, have knowledge of. Our good friend Bob Hendrickson died to this life two days ago. We know that Bob is not dead. He died to this life, but he is whole again. He is with the Lord, reunited. Jesus, just as he promised, came and called Bob's name, and Bob knows his voice. And Jesus took Bob to be with Jesus where Jesus is in the place that Jesus prepared for him. That's exactly what happened. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know, so that you may know. To the stunned and terrified shepherds on that Christmas night long ago, an angel of the Lord said this, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Remember, the word angel simply means messenger. Angels are messengers of the Lord. So the message is from the Lord. So from Jesus to those shepherds and to each and every one of us, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. I bring you news of something completely different. I bring you news of a reportable event that has changed everything. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you, to you now, just like the prophet Isaiah promised, to us a child is born, to us a son is given. God has come to us from beyond us for the purpose of helping us. Jesus has come to us from the other side of the fog and said, God sent me to help you and to reunite you with him. That is something completely different from anything the world can offer, from all human religion, all spiritual philosophy, and all human striving. It's good news for everyone everywhere. Thus, it's the cause of great joy for everyone everywhere. The doctrine of Christmas is that something completely different is available to us in Jesus. He said, Jesus, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. And who wants to leave fullness of life on the table? Everybody everywhere is trying to get a better life, do something, make our life. And Jesus simply said, I came to give it to you. Now, getting started with Jesus is not magic if you have never gotten started with Jesus. Returning to Jesus is not magic if you've been wandering off in a far land. It does not involve, neither one of those, coming the first time or or turning back, neither one involves cleaning yourself up before you come because you can't make yourself clean enough. This is something completely different. It doesn't involve completing a religious checklist, you know, ticking all the boxes before you turn to him. You can't earn God's love. This is something completely different. This is not religion. This is God coming to us and extending an invitation. 
It simply involves a humble asking. There's no magic prayer, no magic words. It simply involves us as human beings praying some kind of prayer where we humble ourselves, where we ask God for help, and where we turn to Jesus for that help. That's all we do. So if we do anything in the new year, let's do that. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Pray with me, please. God, thank you that you indeed have come to us. Uh, we, we still experience life as, as pretty foggy, but thank you for those moments of clarity that you give to us, the, the, the kind of piercing sense of your presence, that, that moment of clear illumination, illumination uh, by your spirit. God, help us to live by the light that we've received from you in scripture and by your spirit. I thank you that you have invited us to a completely different way for the purpose of helping us and reuniting us with you, giving us a fullness of life in a reconciled relationship with you. Work that out in us in every way you desire, God, and help us overcome any barriers that, that are in our way. We love you, Lord Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen.